When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, thank you for listening to Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mark, and I'm pleased to have Ken Andrews from Failure on the podcast. We talk about a lot in this episode, like how Ken got into music, how Failure formed, and how the band decided on their unusual name. There's so much failure in this episode, which makes sense because they just released a new album called Wild Type Droid. But we also go into the space between Failure's breakup in 1997 and Reformation in 2013. We go in-depth on bands like On, Year of the Rabbit, Digital Noise Academy, as well as Ken's solo album. There's so much in here like how the segues came to be, new news of a failure documentary, and if there are tour plans for 2022, and how some of the songs on Wild Type Droid were pieced together. Follow the band at FailureBandIG on Instagram, at Failure on Twitter, or the website FailureBand.com and pick up Wild Type Droid on every format imaginable, except maybe Laserdisc. Follow us on the socials at Performance ANX, and you can help support the show at ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety or performanceanx.threadless.com. Let's get right into the show with Ken Andrews of Failure on Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Okay, let me see. Um... This is Ken Andrews from Failure, and you're listening to Performance Anxiety. Or wait, how about this? This is Ken Andrews from Failure, and you're listening to our new album, Wild Type Droid, on Performance Anxiety. But you're not really a radio station. Well, then I'll just... This is Ken Andrews, and you're listening to Performance Anxiety. You know how to edit. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really, uh, I'm really excited. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Me too. Okay. (laughs) This is really awesome for me because of, I've been a huge fan for ever since Magnified, but I did get a chance to see you guys in the, on the 2019 tour and I, okay. In DC at the 930 club. Oh, yeah. And I took a photo that I posted, and I, I sent a bunch to Kelly and all, but you used one of them for a profile pic for a while before you used the one you currently have. 
Oh, cool. It was the uh, the one where it's all Gigi's lights are all red and, and your your fate your head is like blown out. It's all white. You can't see your head. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I, I took that. So Oh, that's awesome. I love that photo. Oh that's man. so cool. I'm glad. Well Thank feel free you. to use it for anything. <laughs> yeah. No, I like that one. It's very um it's like a surrealistic painting. Yeah. Yeah. I love the, right. Well, Gigi's lights helped a lot. Yeah. She beheads a lot of band members. <laughs> she was a guest also. So I've, I've had a lot of oh, people. Oh, that's, that's cool. Yeah. I've Very had a lot, cool. A lot of people in the failure camp. Mm -hmm. Before we get too deep into things, I do want to mention that uh, I did throughout on some social media that I was having you come on. And if anybody had any questions or also, I will be asking those closer to the end, but two Instagram accounts on underscore failure, underscore tribute and Zoe chaos wanted me to say thank you to you for all the music that you've made and that you've really made an impact on them. And, uh, I promised them I would say thank you for them. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. I see them all are posting. I've oh, yeah. I've interacted with them a couple times too. Yeah. Yeah, they're awesome. They're I think they are the biggest failure fans I've ever met. Seriously, it's yeah, it's, it's awesome. It's it's so great to see people that into a band that that I like so much too. So, and there's a yeah, whole community yeah. around the band. It's amazing. <laughs> There, there is because I know that some of our fans have like met each other and then kind of like they have new friendships now. Yeah. You know, you know? and some of them are, you know, in different cities, but the, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, I even met one guy who said one of my friends, I didn't even know that one of my existing friends was a fan. Until we saw both of each other at the show. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's, they just never discussed it. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was funny. That is great. That, that is just a testament to the band. So I want to know a little bit more about how you got to the point of starting this band. I know you were big into film growing up. Was music big for you? Was there a lot of music growing up for you? Was there anything that made a huge impact on you? It's funny because I didn't come from what would normally be considered like a musical family, okay. you know, where like everyone played an instrument from an early age. My mother can, can still play piano very well. Uh, she reads music. She doesn't really compose. Okay. And she doesn't totally understand composing without knowing the notes on the paper. Okay. <laughs> so but i i mean we we have some pretty interesting musical conversations but but my point is no it's like my my big musical and i wouldn't even say it was necessarily a huge influence but it did have a practical impact was that my younger brother was a guitar player and he had been playing i want to say like maybe three or four years before I started, uh, before I one day was just like asked him to show me some chords. Okay. But I was already 18. I was a senior in high school. Oh, wow. So you got and a late start. Yes. I mean, I just didn't, wasn't really looking at music as like anything other than just like kind of a cool hobby to maybe 
get into. And I was all like, I remember thinking, well, I'm just gonna ask him to show me some chords. And if it's fun, like I'll keep doing it. If it's like a pain or something, I'm just whatever. <laughs> I was pretty whatever about it. <laughs> wow. But then as soon as I started playing and could actually string like, you know, a chord progression together, a very simple chord progression together, like I was like that, everything kind of changed. Then I was like, this is cool. This is like, <laughs> wait, I could go to a different chord for the third chord. Like, you know, all this, like, I don't know, but I was all, the other thing that happened to me not soon after that was that I, you know, I just kept kind of learning guitar parts off of records. I liked in, including the cars first record. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which was, you know, that was like, see, that would have been 85. So that had been out since 78. Eight. It wasn't, yeah. yeah, it wasn't a new record, but I found it to be a very good record to learn how to play guitar from. Oh, really? Yeah. Maybe I should have checked that out instead of Led Zeppelin as my first <laughs> attempts. I, seriously, because I think, yeah, the, well, it depends what you're, what, whose parts you were trying to learn if you're trying to learn elliot easton's parts jimmy page might be easier actually because right. <laughs> some point. of elliot easton's solos were like pretty pretty sophisticated right um playing and technique that he would use but i focus more on the rhythm stuff okay. the rick Ocasek stuff so there was no and, real piano from your mom going on it before this then even though nope. she was she liked playing no, well, at actually at that point, I don't think we even had a piano. Okay. When I was in high school, we had a piano when I was young, and there was, I need to, yeah, I sh I need to revise somewhat that there. <laughs> I think when I was like maybe seven, there were there was like two piano lessons, like half hour piano lessons that did. <laughs> went nowhere <laughs> so Zero. An hours like, worth of piano and then 18 years old guitar yep all right i don't think we have to worry about revising things like that so if it's only an hour's worth of lessons that's I what i mean it was it was it, it was nothing i think the the thing that was maybe different about my my journey with guitar was that once i could kind of make a chord progression i really wanted to overdub on myself oh wow from the beginning yeah i knew what it was i i understood that whole side of it and i was like i have an idea i can hum a melodic part over these chords right now in my head and if i had a multi-track i could record this and figure out that melody and play it and it would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody would love me. Yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> no, I just was very, like, I think when a lot of people would be like, okay, I learned that song, let's learn another song, mm -hmm. or let's learn an even harder song to play and get better as a musician and a player and dexterity and speed and all that stuff. I was already trying to figure out how to buy a cassette for a track. So you really had a bug for production early on then. Yeah. Okay. Looking back now. Yeah. I, I can see that really clearly that, that I, I, because I know a lot of guitar players who didn't do that. You know, uh, yeah. they didn't, didn't get close to anything r about recording 
for much longer. Yeah. In fact, that the going on to saying, hey, I can overdub myself and layer my sound and make it thicker and bigger doesn't happen for quite a while for most of the people I've had on the podcast. So the fact that you're thinking about that immediately is, is a completely different path from the majority of people I've had on. I think that's why I think that's why for me, um, being in a band and being a singer and a guitarist or bassist and, you know, recording engineer and mixer and producer, like none of that, like everyone's like, well, that's weird, dude. Why do you do all that? Like, why don't you just let somebody else do that? Like it doesn't make any sense. And yeah. And for me, I'm just like, it makes total sense. I've been doing it for so long. Yeah. Like my whole journey with music really kind of, to me, I don't actually remember that much before I even got the four track. Oh, wow. I do remember dropping a needle on that cars record a few times and like (laughs) figuring out moving in stereo and, and, you know, most of that record, but I don't have a whole lot of memories of, being a guitarist before I got my four track. Wow. Then I felt like this is super fun. This is cool. You, but you didn't actually go to school for music or anything. You decided to go to school for film. So who was influencing mm-hmm. you in film? Cause that's just as a, as big an obsession to me as music is. Mm-hmm. So what made you decide to go to school for film and what, what were your plans did you were you thinking motion pictures or were you thinking something a little different documentaries i think i mean i really if i had to point to one thing or experience that happened to me before college that made me want to go into the visual you know film and tv stuff was the fact that the high school i went to actually had a film and tv department which was pretty different in the eighties. Um, sure. but I went to a really big high school in, um, in San Diego that had over 3000 kids going there. Whoa. It was like a small university in a way. Yeah. Um, my graduating class was 900 and something kids. Oh my God. So I don't even, I didn't, didn't even know all the kids in my class, like not even close, but they all had, it was a big campus. And I saw it right on the first day of school, like film and video department. I'm like, what is that? Because (laughs) I was definitely already interested in cameras and photography. I didn't really have a video camera uh, up until later than that, but I had taken in junior high, there was a basic black and white photography course. Okay. And me and one other kid at my school took it. <laughs> Jeez. Oh my <laughs> And gosh. there was the te- when the te- when the teacher first saw how many people signed up for it, he was like, Yeah, this is gonna be independent study. Oh nice. <laughs> <laughs> Which basically meant we had the dark room to ourselves, like completely to ourselves. And the other kid basically lost interest after the first week. Oh man. Because the thing was, he said is I want to teach you the real basics. And I'm like, well, what, what does that mean to you? And he's like, I I want you to learn how to fill your own uh, film cartridges with negative. Um, 
in the dark that's you know, awesome and, and 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 you know make your own prints and project and 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 all the chemicals for developing the, everything but the thing of it was is like he wasn't really around and so i w- was just kind of going off these old manuals in the dark room oh, and man. spilling chemicals everywhere and just like, it was just <laughs> but i managed to lear- actually learn photography i learned about you know film sensitivity aperture shutter speed you know like the real nuts and bolts of photography right yeah when i was in 7th grade oh that's awesome so I felt like when I went to high school, I kind of had a little bit of a boost going into that film and TV program there. And I immediately signed up for it. And then the other thing that happened is, you know, like a lot, I just saw this somewhere on social media, like everybody remembers their favorite teacher, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, I have a favorite teacher from high school and his name was uh, Bill Mayle. M-A-L-E, not, okay. not like letter mail. <laughs> um, he, he's gone. I mean, he's, he's been gone for a while now, but he, uh, I don't know. He was just awesome. He was also an English teacher, but he, he really taught a great course on, on making video, whether it was like kind of like a school news program where you'd go out and interview the different sports teams and, or cover a game or whatever yeah. it was, or, you know, it was like, it was, we, we ended up doing a full like hour long news kind of magazine show. Oh, nice. And by the time I was finishing in my senior year, the show was like super popular within the school. It was popular. Like kids wanted to see it, but then the principal decided, wow, I could use this. And so he would have us film him giving his monthly message to the whole school. And because he was in it now for five minutes, he required everyone in the school to see it every month (laughs) in their first period class. Oh, that is great. So that last like nine months of my senior year, I was famous. <laughs> I was famous in my school. It that was is, so weird. That is awesome. <laughs> With a huge because class I was like that. I, I was producing a lot of the the content in the show, but I was also on camera right. hosting things and asking people questions and stuff. But <laughs> the, the cool part was is that after we did a few episodes and kind of got into the whole flow of it we started to want to make like kind of like more experimental pieces i guess is what we would call them okay (laughs) like very satirical and weird and a lot of like people weren't understanding what we were doing but i mean sorry the teachers weren't getting what we were doing on some of the episodes within this hour okay like the last two episodes we were like they were sometimes we do like a narrative spoof on like a, a current movie. Like we did one on Indiana Jones. Okay. That was pretty fun. And the kids <laughs> loved that. And, but then they kept getting weirder and weirder. And finally I did this weird satirical thing of, I mean, when I was a kid, they had all these movies 
called the series of m- movies they would show you in school called I am Joe's brain. I am Joe's stomach. I am Joe's lungs. Oh, wow. And, and they would teach you what they were. Okay. Right. It'd be like an animated lung or an animated <laughs> stomach talking basically. Oh, okay. Okay. But they would always cut back to live action of Joe going throughout his day. <laughs> and I just remember this one shot where he was obviously told to act like he was having indigestion. Okay. And he was like, like that. And I was like, <laughs> you could see where this is going. Right? Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. So as we remade this thing, but it was called I am Ken's stomach. <laughs> <laughs> I got to find this video. It's weird, weird that I'm remembering all this right now, but let me just put it this way. The video ends with me going to the school cafeteria, which, of course, you know, like the joke is always like the worst food in the world is from a high school cafeteria. Right. So I get like a burrito <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm eating it. And then I do that look that Joe did in the movie. <laughs> and I'm like, but instead of cutting away, I'm like, oh, my God. And I run and I run all the way through the school. We filmed me running through the school after school when there was no one there. So it was like, it looked really like an action movie for a few minutes. And I'm like running, like, where do I go? I end up in the middle of the quad, the center of the school. And after school at five o'clock, when most of the faculty had gone, we did a whole gnarly vomit scene. Uh (laughs) <laughs> oh, and here's the thing so we put it we cut it into the piece right okay. and i knew bill our teacher was probably gonna cut it out he was probably he had final cut he didn't want us to lose funding for his right. whole program you know <laughs> but he was also a hippie like historically like he was like a very, you know, and he saw and he watched it and he just busted up laughing. <laughs> and, and I just looked at him, I go, is it going to stay in? And he's like, it's in. Oh, nice. <laughs> and, but here's the thing. And so it, it got played that Monday or whatever of that month in the school. And sure enough, in the train changeover between first and second period, I saw like six teachers running for the principal's office. <laughs> and then 10 minutes later, I see Bill walking to the principal's office. Oh no. And then an hour later, I'm going to the principal's office. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was awesome. That is amazing. It was so good. And the kid, like, it was like, the kids were screaming <laughs> during class. Like we, uh, this school was so big that it had, um, a lot of schools have like bungalows for the too many kids oh, for the or too many classes, the overflow, overflow. Yeah. Thank you. And I remember walking through those bungalows and just hearing, ah! like, you know, <laughs> kids just screaming and teachers hitting their desk with their rules. Be quiet. <laughs> it was awesome. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it, it was like, it was, it was my best moment in high school oh, for sure that i mean teachers amazing. wanted to suspend me but the principal was i remember watching the principal literally get yelled at by one of his own teachers 
<laughs> but while he was getting yelled at, he was kind of like trying not to laugh. Because <laughs> it was funny. I mean, it was funny. That's it was awful. gross. Yeah. But it was, I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't about violence or anything, you right. know what I mean? It was like vomiting. It was over the top and comedic. It was totally comedic, but it was probably inappropriate for high school. <laughs> in the morning. Okay, in maybe. the morning, yeah. I, was gonna say, maybe, yeah. I don't know. So, I mean, I honestly could sit here and, and talk photography with you all day. I, my dad used to work for Ilford, so I got all... Oh, wow. Yeah, I used to get all kinds of film and stuff from him, and that's how I got my love of photography. I got my first camera from him and then uh, had a similar experience in high school, not with the video stuff, more the, it was a, like a creative arts program where you, you would do graphic design and, and uh, photography. And I just, Adobe thing? No, no. This is, okay. this was back in like 88 to 91. Uh, okay. So, okay. Uh, so I had a, I had free reign of the dark room. So, cause I was the only one in there that yeah. went to photography. So I would be in the dark room the entire time. And, and my teacher, again, like even one of my favorite teachers of all time was, was that teacher, Mr. Skank. I think he's passed on as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny because there is a very, I'm, and I'm sure, you know, there's a very famous photographer named Rocky Skank. I didn't know that. Okay. Well, he had a son named Rocky Skank, but they're two completely different people. It's just really bizarre. How many Rocky okay. Skanks could there possibly be? There's at least two. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, Rocky Skank did a lot of stuff for like Alice in Chains, um, uh, Jerry Cantrell's oh. solo stuff, like uh, Boggy Depot. He shot all that stuff. But um, anyway, going on a tangent here, that really got me hooked between my dad encouraging me and my school's arts teacher encouraging me. I ended up going to uh, Rochester Institute of Technology and majoring in photography, which is where I learned oh, how wow. to, which is where I had learned how to bulk load film and do everything. And in, in, uh, yeah, bulk load, yeah. in fact, the, uh, it was amazing. It, Adobe uh, Photoshop one came out in, when I, in my sophomore or junior year. So like 92 or 93 and everything looked horrible. I just mm. sat there and like, who is going to use this program? What the hell possibly? Because everything looked like Atari right, graphics. Yeah. And it was all like, yeah. what possible use is this going to be? And then, yeah. you know, 10 years later, I'm like, shit, I got to play catch up. I got to learn to Photoshop now. <laughs> so, yeah. But so uh, were you playing in any bands at the time or was failure your first real band? I mean, Failure was definitely my first real band in the sense that we played shows. Okay. Um, I did mess around with, with a few people in a barn in North San Diego on some land that one of them loosely was connected to. <laughs> Random musicians would use this barn to play in because it was far away from far enough away from anything that no one really cared if you were being loud. Oh, that's good. That's nice. So yeah, that becomes like a focal point for a lot of people who want to make loud noise and probably do some other things. So yeah, I, that's where I met uh, Robert who would become the first drummer of failure. Right. We met in San Diego and then we both ended up moving to LA around the same time. He went to LACC, LA Community College, which is kind of like pretty cool arts community college in Hollywood area. And I went to, I actually transferred from one semester 
at SDSU in San Diego to Cal State LA. And so we got an apartment together and we were both doing our separate college things, but, you know, hanging out some because we were roommates. And I had my four track that I brought up from San Diego. And so in my, we had a two bedroom apartment and in my bedroom, I had a cassette four track, a bass guitar, a six string electric guitar, a carbon combo, oh, a tube combo that I think I bought used in San Diego. Oh, nice. I can't, I can't, can't remember where I got that thing. Um, a cassette four track and a, a 58. And I had, I, mm, I'm not sure what the model number was, but I had a pretty rudimentary, like, yeah, I think it was Yamaha drum machine. So really I had the bare bones for a four track rock band, Yeah, right? I had a drum machine, I had a bass, I had a guitar and I had a mic. And so I would do drums on one, bass on two, guitar on three and vocal on four. And then I would bounce all of those down to one or maybe two and have one or two tracks left over. Um, so, you know, I was doing, Basically, I was, you know, just kind of farting around, but I ended up sort of writing maybe like the first four songs that that the band, when we all eventually got together in a room, learned and okay. played. Like You're Too Much was on there. Um, I think maybe Count My Eyes. It's like four, I think maybe four songs on this, on this four track tape that I had been working on for essentially probably years, maybe two years, three years, some of it, maybe even in high school at the end of high school. Um, and at some point I had like three or four songs on a mix down, just regular stereo cassette that I finally was not in completely freaked out to play for someone because <laughs> I hadn't played anything for anyone. Oh, okay. Like I really hadn't. I waited to record where I knew no one was listening. Oh, wow. Yeah, man. When, so when did singing start for you? Was that the same time you started really focusing on the guitar? Yeah, pretty. I mean, maybe not quite the same, maybe a little bit later, but probably sooner than I should have. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I could picture that little setup I have, I, I had, and I do think there were probably a lot of ideas I did that were just instrumental, but occasionally I would get an instrumental idea that would coax me into like trying to write a vocal part or actually sing a vocal part. But I remember playing or no, I don't think I played it for him. I think I just gave it to him. And even though he was my roommate already, I was like, I was kind of like, um, <laughs> yeah. like, I made this tape. You might want to check it out. He's yeah. like, 
Oh yeah, I think you. I, I heard you recording some shit. Yeah, let me check it out. So, but he was leaving. He left and he drove somewhere on a school or a job or something. I didn't see him until the next day. I mean, he just sort of casually me- mentioned, "Yeah, I listened to the tape. It's cool. Let, like, we should totally do a band." Wow. Like, okay. Cool. But here's <laughs> from when he said that to when we got in a room with Greg was almost two years. Oh man. Yeah. Because it was literally like, yeah, we should do a band. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's do a band. But did anyone do anything about it for like even three months probably went by and we were like, wait, weren't we going to do a band? (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. I want to take a minute and talk about our sponsor, Tiesta Tea. Tiesta is a tea company on a mission to create loose leaf tea beverages with premium ingredients that taste good and do good. Each tea is blended for one of five categories so you can energize, slenderize, boost antioxidants, boost immunity, and relax. My current favorite is Blueberry Wild Chow. You know, when I was growing up, my dad always told me, Once you go loose, you never go bagged. And you know what? He was right. Go to TiestaTea.com and use the promo code ANXIETY15 at checkout to get 15% off your order. Think you know tea? You haven't tried Tiesta Tea. It wasn't like super high priority, but eventually it's like, yeah, let's look, check it out. People advertise in the recycler and in the music connection for our band members. Yeah. And... I was like, okay, cool. So we, I've spent an evening crafting a two sentence <laughs> ad for recycle for the recycler and put it in there and, and put it in the music connection too. At the same time, I know we were doing both, I think at the same time. Okay. And I think if I remember correctly, I think there was no point into in in really even playing with most of the people that called on the ad because we could just tell they they didn't even really know the bands that we had listed. Oh, we had listed like The Cure, Bauhaus, and what else? I can't even, some, some, something in that vein, probably British, you know, you know, gothy kind of dark stuff. Right. And, um, most people calling our ad were just like looking for a gig, you know? Um, oh yeah. I've, I've heard of the cure. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're cool. Right. Yeah. I know joy division. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It was like, cool, man. Nice to meet you. <laughs> um, but it was, I think I don't remember getting in a room with anyone for, for like a year and a half because wow. the, the calls were just like, Oh, this is because it costs money to go get a rehearsal space. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Like that was kind of the next level for us next. Uh, that was a big commitment. Like, wow. We're really going to spend our own money on this. You yeah, know, you can't do it in your apartment. No, so. no. <laughs> so, um, eventually Greg called. Hmm. I'm embarrassed. I can't even remember who he talked to first, if it was me or Robert. <laughs> well, it's been a few uh, years. It's... Yeah, it's been a few. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was definitely the call went well enough that I, I remember both Robert and I were like, 
let's let's book a room. Cool. Oh, and we awesome. found this rehearsal space that was like maybe two or three miles away from our apartment um, on Pico called Bluebird. Okay. It's not it's not there anymore. And um, we booked a small room in there. And I'm not even sure if we met Greg in person before that, or if we just wow. met there at the at the space. And you know, I could tell right away that he was a better musician than I was. <laughs> um, and which that that was a good. I knew that to be a good thing. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> I was not challenged, but I was like, okay, good, good. good. <laughs> Somebody's can play. Um, <laughs> And he learned anything I threw at him. He was just like, okay, cool. What else? Wow, you know, that's amazing. so he, he was, he was already more, he had more experience okay. playing and it was just, his hands were just faster and, and more accurate for sure. But, you know, I was, I would say that that the first, what ended up becoming comfort which, you know, pretty much every song that we worked on from that day until we, like a year and a half later went to go work with Steve Albini. Those were kind of like all kind of from my uh, original, the sound was kind of more from my original four track songs. Okay. And, and I was the one who was bringing in the initial ideas most of the time. And I was the one writing the lyrics and doing the singing. a lot after that record because Greg and I started spending more time together and I started discovering just how good of a writer he was and oh. he started showing me you know because before I think it was, he more thought of himself as a cool bass player okay but yeah. the reality was is that he he knew a lot more about making cool songs than just the bass parts you know right not not that not to sell bass parts short but like he was a great guitarist turned out and <laughs> also had just really good ideas for arrangement and he also turned out pretty freaking good drummer oh really which actually ended up helping out the second album because Robert ended up not really, really liking the songs we were writing for oh, Magnified. Really? He thought it was taking like too much of a pop turn. Oh, wow. And, you know, I totally understood that. And it was like a pretty amicable split. But then we tried to get someone in and we did get someone in and we started recording the album with them. And it just wasn't really working out and they they kind of felt it too and so they kind of left the project and it was just greg and i left to kind of finish it and i was like oh shit what are we gonna do <laughs> or he was like oh shit what are we gonna do and i was like 
you're playing drums <laughs> nice and i was like man i'm not ready i'm not ready for that i am not ready for that like that's gonna be hard because he knew exactly what the parts were because he had programmed them for the demos with a drum machine ah right and there were several there's several songs on that record where the kick drum patterns are brutal just brutal <laughs> really hard to play you have to have a lot of endurance and and just experience you know to be able to play those really repetitive but they were really important to those songs like frogs and so you know yeah. some of those they're very kick centric songs let it drip and The solution that we found was to actually use those programmed drum parts that we had programmed for the demos. Okay. Except we just muted everything except the kick drum and printed the kick drum and a metronome track from the drum machine to to tracks like one and two or something. Okay. And so Greg played a lot of that record with a full kit fully mic'd up except there was no kick drum oh wow yeah that's amazing so he was playing the kick drum part with his foot just on the floor oh. <laughs> but the difference but the wow. difference was is his foot didn't have to nail those really consistent pickup notes that we wanted for yeah. frogs and stuff like that which is that's just something it's not even really feel it's like more just like you know woodshedding to be able to do that for like four minutes straight you know oh i'm sure yeah I'm not and a... he didn't have it and he didn't have it and the other guy that had already quit didn't have it and so that's where we ended up fortunately we got a drummer who does have the ability to do those parts now <laughs> so bef before we move on to kelly joining up uh, your experience with steve albini i've heard a lot of different experiences with him. I mean, he, what I've heard is, is the same from everybody is that he basically just likes to capture the band's live sound. And mm -hmm. I know that you've taken on the role of, of producing. It was, how was your experience with Steve Albini? I mean, did you like the sound that you got or did you want more of a, less of a live sound, more of a, of a higher production value? That's not the right term I'm trying to use, but hopefully I'm getting my point across. I don't know. Um, no, I mean, I think it's pretty known that I, I certainly wasn't super happy with the final product of that record in, yeah. in 91. Um, I, I knew I didn't like it, but I probably didn't know the best way to make it better. And now looking back, I know what would have made it better. And that would have been us not making it for another year. Uh, not, not going into the studio for another year and just playing live. Okay. And that the funny thing is, is that was actually discussed at the label discussed it. Part of the, some of some at the label wanted us to tour 
before going in the studio. But the owner at the time and president was just like, no, I want him in the studio and tour on that. And whatever that record is, maybe it's going to not be so great, but they'll at least have something to tour on and get the name out there. And I would rather have a weird record as a first record, but I want a record. Okay. That you, was his argument. Were you guys playing out, uh, playing live a lot at that time? I mean, it's a little hard to rebuild the calendar back uh, back then. I'm sure, but yeah. my, to the best of my ability, I think we played about twenty shows in total before we went to go play with Steve Albini. Wow. Yeah. Jeez, you got so, fresh. Gr- green as yeah, yeah, green as you don't want to be. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the the thing of it was, I think the demos that we were making were intriguing. They had some kind of like something was interesting about them, and there was sort of this like proto version of the band, but in the end. If you're going to record with Steve Albini, you really should be probably be doing that on your second or third record where you've already toured a lot. Right. And you feel and you're more confident player and singer and drummer and and band. Yeah. So I think what I hear when I hear the performances on that record is a really young band that's pretty nervous. And um, the tempos are sliding all over the place. And, uh, you know, uh, the vocals, you know, <laughs> timid. And, you know, so, yeah. I mean, that's why I, I don't, even though I wasn't happy with that record, I don't necessarily point the finger at Steve Albini because I think if, if we had really read the situation better, we would have maybe chosen someone else for that first record mm-hmm. or we would have waited until we were more ready as a, as a band. You guys make magnified. You've got no drummer. Did Kelly join before, after, during the replicants era? Right. Okay. So the rep after. Okay. Okay. Oh, oh no. Wait, did, Wait, what did you say? Did Kelly join before or after the Replicants era? Yeah. The, the, oh, that well, let album. me tell you when um, he joined before. Okay. Because Replicants, Replicants recording happened right after we turned in Fantastic Planet. Okay. Right after. And in a way, it was kind of like a little bit of a what would you call a distraction from the depressing (laughs) news that when we turned in fantastic planet we didn't really have a a a functional label to turn it into oh wow yeah they were trying to between them giving us our budget to go record and us going to them hey here's your here's the record we made which was about seven months later they had decided to sell the label oh geez. which was a pretty big deal because they were as in terms of indie record labels they were really pretty successful and well known they had a lot of 
well-known acts on the label and they had a few releases that were platinum and um yeah they've kind of for whatever reason felt like that was the time to cash out so we got along with you know pretty much every act on the label we we got our our contracts were basically held in limbo for about 18 months and that was with slash right yeah that was slash okay. yeah wow i think you mentioned that, i think maybe in the golden dvd i'm not sure but i believe and correct me if i'm wrong i believe i remember hearing you say that you kind of went into recording fantastic planet a little differently that you would work on one song to completion before moving on to the next song it was am i remembering that right Mm-hmm. wow yeah. that's so because we were writing the songs at the same time i mean we were like writing a song getting it to the point where we could cut drums on it where we felt like we had the drum parts and a decent arrangement and you know sometimes that would take if depending on the song that would take a day or two or it could take like two weeks wow. before we'd be ready to say yeah this is this is the arrangement let's record drums and then record everything else we were still doing we still didn't have facility or really the confidence to do drums as an overdub which we do all the time these days yeah but you know uh yeah it was it, it was just like Pillowhead came together super fast It's like it's just the riff and the and the chorus and that's really it. It's like less than three minutes, and we knew there wasn't going to be anything too tricky about the drums. There was just going to be pretty straight rock beat that came together super fast. Banged out the drums second day of working on it. Probably spent two or three days, maybe just two days, overdubbing guitars, working on the vocals. You know, a song like that, I think, was probably four days in total, whereas okay. a song like maybe Stuck on You or Heliotropic or Daylight would be more like two or three weeks wow. of trying to crack the, the code kind of on whatever the song needed to be. Now, were these songs written with a theme in mind? Did you guys have the theme of Fantastic Planet in mind as you were going along, or did it just kind of make itself known at the end? I think we picked the title before the end, before you, before mixing. Okay. Um, and I have, you know, again, I have to ask Greg about this because I don't think he brought in the poster 
of the Fantastic Planet movie, right? Because we all loved that movie before we moved into that house to make it. We were aware of that. We'd seen it. I think we owned it on Laserdisc. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> or DVD. I can't even remember what it was, but <laughs> we had a Laserdisc player there. I remember that. Man. And uh, we would occasionally watch it up there. And, the, and then at some point, Greg had... Actually, no. I think someone gave him the po- the movie poster as a gift, maybe for his birthday or Christmas or something. Because we were there for like six, seven months doing Fantastic Planet, and then we went straight into the Replicants, which was like three months. Wow. So we were there for a better part of a year. Um, Jeez. But he had that poster. He put it up in the control room. And there's some photos of us playing guitar with it in the background. And then at one point, I think I, I this, this is how I'm remembering it. He was just looking at the poster and he's like, that's our title. And I was just like, uh, I wasn't into it at first. I, I, I definitely was like, no, it's too much like fantastic voyage, the movie. You know where they shrink oh. everyone down and yeah. inject them in the tear duct? I love that movie. That's a great um, movie. That movie is so good. I, <laughs> that movie is so good. I I was I just kind of blew it off for a while, but it it grew on me for sure. And then we had the the sort of um, discussion about what songs were were going to make the record because we had just been working and working at it all of a sudden we looked up and we had like 17 songs or, or, wow. you know, like 15 songs and some other types of songs that weren't really songs that we ended up calling segues. But right. um, we had a lot of things, but my uh, thought, my assumption was that we were going to whittle that down to something shorter and that some of these weren't going to make the cut. And I remember bringing that up to Greg and he was like, mm-hmm. And he was just kind of being quiet about it. <laughs> and then the next day he comes in and he's like, here's a sequence. And I looked at it and it had every song on it. <laughs> and I was like, dude, we can't, this probably won't even fit on a CD. We're like, what are you thinking? <laughs> and he's like, all of it's going on. Wow. They was, he was just like real confident about it. And he's like, you don't even know what this is. And the, yeah, it was awesome. It was a, re- it was a memorable argument that, it- <laughs> that I'm so happy he won. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, ultimately I just came around cause I listened to it. I just, well, let's listen to it. And I started listening to it and I had a very similar experience on this album on wild type droid. Oh, really? I thought there was, I thought there were a couple songs that just seemed out of place to me. And he's like, just hold on. And he sends me a sequence and I listened to it and I'm like, you made those songs fit. Wow. You, you, you made them fit. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, He's man. good at sequencing. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those fantastic planets, one of those albums. And I've, I think sequencing is a, it's an art form. And I think, like you said, Greg, Greg is amazing at doing that. Everything just fits in this right spot. It's one of those things where, the uh the duo of me and him kind of works well in this sense that it's hard for me to get the distance 
because I'm I'm handling a lot of the engineering and sort of like the end of every day kind of like nuts and bolts like yeah. erasing tapes, cleaning tape <laughs> machines and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And it allows him to kind of like be not even be in the control room and get out of the space and um you know it was i don't know it just it, it just works one of the things i absolutely loved about that album was the video for stuck on you the Albert Broccoli Bond theme that runs through that whole video. Was that the band's idea or was somebody else behind that? No, that was, that was, yeah, that was definitely our idea. It was definitely, I mean, it was my idea because I, I actually made a, I wrote a treat, a treatment for it. Oh, wow. And I also, but here's the, I actually made a video where I took this, uh, I, I managed to trans somehow I transferred the spy who loved me off of Laserdisc. I think <laughs> I don't even know how I did it. I think I may have gone back to my college and borrowed their three quarter inch editing machine <laughs> wow. set up for, for a day. It basically just kind of cut a couple different James Bond title sequences over our song. Oh, cool. Like, the actual footage right yeah and 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 because i knew people were going to read that and go uh, james bond i don't if this is a rock band i don't get it it's explain it to me yeah and then i'd show them the video and they'd be like okay i get it <laughs> i get it but the whole reason we even had that idea or i had the idea was that i was it was towards the end of the record i was in the control room and I was making like a dub, you know, some we we're using a dats we we're okay. using dat. And we also had a half inch machine tape, reel to reel tape machine mm -hmm. machine to mix down to constantly making copies and dubs and protections and wow. instrumentals and all, you know, just all that stuff. But the kitchen was just right off the control room. And then right off the kitchen was a little like, tiny little like tv room that we had set up okay. to watch watch movies and whatever and you know it was probably like two or three in the afternoon and kelly had just woken up <laughs> and <laughs> he was probably i think i seem to remember he was in his robe at some point we all just wore robes it was kind of awesome <laughs> never got dressed just rolled out of bed <laughs> pajamas on put on a robe put on a guitar and played <laughs> oh my god you should do a video of that well there's pictures of me wearing a, all of us wearing robes oh all of us i've got to go back and watch golden again i see if i can find that yeah uh but he okay so i'm running this dub right uh and stuck on you is on the dub and and i turn it down but not so far down that I can't hear it when I walk out of the room because I want to hear when it ends so I can come in and stop the machine, right? Right. 
And so I'm in the kitchen, like maybe making some lunch or something. I'm listening to Stuck on You with one ear out here. And I hear Kelly put in the Spy Who Loved Me laser disc. And he hits play. And it's playing. And he's like rolling a cigarette or something. And I just kind of look over into that room and I see the title sequence with the girls in slow motion mm -hmm. during the gymnastics. Yep. And I'm hearing the tempo of Stuck on You. And I'm just like, whoa, Kelly, Kelly. And I go back in the control room. I turn up Stuck on You and I go, listen, look. And he's like, that's a video. <laughs> That's a video, definitely. And we both, we just kind of agreed right then. Oh. If we make a video for Stuck on You, this is the concept. And he's done. And so cut to two years later, the Warner Brothers picks Stuck on You to be the first song and they want a video for it. And they want to know who we're interested in for directors and or concepts. And I just was like, I got a concept. Boom, here it is. <laughs> and they liked it. They, they actually really liked it. Some of them were still confused about it. They thought that we were going to be James Bond uh... and not a band in the video. And I was like, no, we're going to be a band in a James Bond title sequence. Man, uh, okay. <laughs> it's just funny. But once they, once the label saw the video, they freaked out. They just loved it, and they got real behind it. And they got behind "Stuck on You" as a radio sing single, and they started promoting "Stuck on You." They well, they serviced it to MTV, and MTV added it right away. Yeah, I and but they. It, they kind of kept it in like, you know, mid, low, mid lo level rotation, you know, and we kind of were like, oh man, right that, at that point in time, if a rock band like us was gifted with an MTV buzz clip. Yeah. Oh, I remember those. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, what a buzz clip meant was what it meant was insane heavy rotation right like mtv basically saying we're going to show you how powerful we are we're going to break a band and we can do it with just play their video four to five times a day guaranteed you're going to sell records yeah and what's really interesting is that they didn't pick it as a buzz clip they never uh, really no wow no they they did not. It was it was shot down. Oh. Um, but what the thing of it is is like I don't know how many years later, twenty five years later, I actually totally find we all found out like exa exactly what went down because at, at that point there were four people uh, deciding who got buzz clip at MTV. Okay. All of them, you probably know their names because they all went on to you know either run labels or run communication oh, okay. companies well-known people one of them matt pinfield oh okay who has been a champion of the bands since the very beginning basically yeah. and even almost even more so since we rebooted oh really and i yeah oh, i mean awesome. i knew him back in the 90s and we shot the shit a few times but like 
I've got to know it much better in the in the reboot. Just more more time to hang out, and we did some more in depth interviews with him, or at least I did. Um, but one of the interviews that he he has done was not him interviewing me. It was actually some filmmakers interviewing him for uh, a failure documentary that's being made. Oh, cool. Yeah. And he talked, I've watched that interview where he talks about that moment where he was in that meeting and he was getting pissed. Wow. <laughs> he was just like, it was so close. He was just like, <sighs> like that would have been the, it would have been the difference for us at that point in time, for sure. Cause we were just, we were selling like 10, 10,000 a week, you know, which mm -hmm. was pretty good. It wasn't like what like Pearl Jam was doing, obviously. Right. Um, but you know, we were right at that cusp of like, Oh, if we just, someone just kind of pushed, right. pushed it over and it didn't happen, but you know, things happen and don't happen all the time, but I was just, yeah. it was just interesting to kind of find out the details about things that happened so long ago. That's amazing. I remember watching that video. First of all, loving that song. That was one of my favorite songs on Fantastic Plants. One of my favorite songs, honestly, ever. I, it's, I love that song. And I remember thinking, finally, these guys are going to be, because I, I mean, and I'm not going to be the, uh, the, I've been a fan forever. I've been a fan since Magnified. I didn't, I, I went back and got comfort after finding you guys through Magnified. But when I saw the video for Stuck on You, I'm like, yes, these guys are going to break through. And it's just going to be the, I'm going to be touring. I'm going to be able to watch them in, in stadiums and all. And then I just kept waiting and waiting. And, and yeah, I was it like, didn't happen. and then all of a sudden I'm like, yeah. I see, well, the band's no longer around. I'm like, what, yeah. what the hell? So yeah. at what point did you figure failure was done? Before I get into that, I do have one question that I meant to ask in the very beginning. How did you, how did you guys decide on the name failure? Cause it's kind of, uh. Not a name a lot of bands would choose. <laughs> a, a name no band would choose, right. basically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, it's all about context. And the context of choosing that name was, you know, 1989 into, ni yeah, 1989, I think, is when we picked it very end of 89 we're starting to play greg had officially joined the band and we we're trying to book gigs or maybe we had played one gig i can't i don't even remember i think we just played a party party without a name or something but it was like okay we gotta have a name and i think robert presented the name at that point and what was going on at the time was that hair metal was still going strong yes this is pre nevermind it's post it, it's like right when grunge is about to happen but it hasn't happened yet right yeah gnr is still huge and no it's more like faster pussycat oh, and la and, guns and la guns okay. and poison oh, and yeah. um that kind of stuff okay. you know like straight Super. strict hair metal yeah and what was going on See, our, our little world was all about like music connection and the recycler where we were, cause we had just gotten our bass player from there. Right. right? So we were really tuned into that and we would constantly just 
crack up at the ads we were seeing for the hair bands like uh, like bassist wanted you know okay. and they would say things like you know must have pro attitude pro gear pro hair pro hair <laughs> <laughs> i mean it was just like you couldn't make that shit it was crazy like i mean it was just like it had come down they had uh codified what it took to be a great band or a great band member you know right. they had it down to the everything <laughs> and we would just thought it was so ridiculous and so we wanted to poke fun at them and so we thought it would just be hilarious if they saw an ad for or like a show where a band failure was played <laughs> Because it would be the exact antithesis of, of having pro hair. Pro hair. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's I'm, where it came from. I'm not kidding. That that awesome. is exactly where it came from. That was our that was our version of being punk. Okay. You know, kids from the suburbs. We weren't from the city. You know, middle class, upper middle class suburb kids called their band failure. That's that oh was our that was our punk rock moment. Nothing is more punk rock than naming your band after a joke. I'll I will be honest. I yeah. think that's the most punk rock thing I've heard. <laughs> so when did you decide you had to move on from failure? Well, I mean, I don't I don't think it's like that unknown at this point. Like the the failure ended in ninety seven because of Greg's drug habit. Right. I mean, straight up. Um we were in a position where Fantastic Planet had done a hundred thousand and Warner Brothers, I mean Stephen Baker, who was the president who brought us there, who, who sort of isolated us from Slash and brought us to Warner Brothers. Um, he came to the second to last Lollapalooza that we were on in ninety-seven, and he after we played our second show at, on the second stage, he came over to me and he's like, look, we're going to keep you on the road for another like two months or so um, after Lollapalooza, but we're, we're done. We're done with this record. Wow. Promo we're done promoting this record. We want another album. And I was, I didn't even know what to say at that point. Cause I was a, I was disappointed and they weren't going to do another single like, like they told us they were, but B the reality was I wasn't sure. In fact, I was pretty sure we weren't really a functional band at that point. Um, cause the, the drug abuse was getting pretty, pretty scary at that point. And so basically after that tour, I kind of attempted to test the water and see if we could write together. But, you know, at the same time, I'm having conversations with his parents about potential interventions. Wow. And, you know, I mean, it was not cool. There was yeah. cars were getting totaled. And wow. I mean, the reality is a lot of people would have not been surprised at all if he would have died. Wow. During that period. Yeah, man. So it was just like. What do you do? I mean, I had people who knew the situation just telling me, look, you got to move on, but you know, don't, st don't stop the band. And I'm like, 
don't stop the band. He wow. is the band. Yeah. I mean, he's not, he isn't the band, but like, it's not the band without him. Yeah, exactly. I just couldn't envision that. I just, it, especially uh, because as I said, like if comfort was kind of like the beginning, it was mostly me as we evolved writing wise, his role increased every album and, you know, culminating in fantastic planet where, where he had written some really beautiful pieces. And I was just like, look, I, I just want, I hope I'm just want to make sure he doesn't die, but there's no point in continuing with this band. Right. This band, this band cannot continue without Greg. He, he's, it's just, it's not cool. So I kind of like struggled with what to do for a while. And that, you know, I kind of used a challenge, the challenge of trying to learn how to uh, record on the computer as a way to kind of like dip my toe back into like trying to write a song, you know, okay. cause this is months after this, this is what would have been like more like in mid 98. Okay. Is that when you started? To, well, I guess maybe the best way to phrase this is what is the wonder girls? Because that is, there's a huge group of people in that is, I found one song and it, shows up on celebrity death match it's a sly fox song let's go all the way ends up on celebrity death match in 99 and then iron man 3 14 years later so it's, what, what, what song let's go all the way by the wonder girls i don't know what that is are you oh my gosh okay who's well, the wonder girls i am pulling that up right now because you are listed as being part of that Oh, that's that's not me. I'm sure it's it's just there is. I mean, there's a bunch of Ken Andrews obviously out there in the world. I'm checking. I, uh, I looked on Discogs, and I, but there is a musician that is also named Ken Andrews okay. who I think has been on a few things, but not usually. I don't think even close to the same genre or type of music, though. It's it's got a bunch of weird. I mean, okay, so the members of the Wonder Girls. It says a rock supergroup from Los Angeles, California, formed in '99. It's got one track: Ashley Hamilton, Chris Lloyd, Douglas Ardito, Ian Asbury, Jay Gordon, Ken Andrews, Mark McGrath, Martin Lenoble, Ryan Shuck, Scott <laughs> Wieland, Shannon Lido, and Tr and Troy Van Leeuwen. I don't even. That's that's a, it. Does <laughs> what does the song sound like? It's it's a like a heavier cover of the the Sly Fox song Let's Go All the Way but it's you know it's like an alternative cover of that it's I was not I'll, on it it's I mean it's not bad but mm -hmm. it was it was kind of weird and so I clicked on so one of my big research tools is Discogs and mm -hmm. I go on there and I click failure and I click you and it says in groups got failure on replicants digital noise academy the wonder girls and you're the rabbit <laughs> i'll have to get that taken care of yeah i know, I know the guy <laughs> who runs discog so all right cool all right, well yeah. hey see now we're getting we're getting things done here um all right so forget wonder girls yeah so you you trying to record or getting back into recording digitally i it, i'm assuming that's what happened or that's how on came about yeah yeah the songs that i started working on after the after failure broke up was 
went on to become an on record. Yeah, the first on record for Sony. Why did you choose on? Because you're basically on is just you, right? At least the first one. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, probably not a smart business decision. <laughs> probably should have just called it my name because I already had a little bit of notoriety, I guess, for being in failure. Well, you, uh, your name is how I got into Blinker the Star because I okay. I was a huge failure fan and I saw the Blinker the Star album and I saw it produced by Ken Andrews and I looked yeah. at it and saw you contributed some vocals and some guitar work to it. I'm like, oh, I'm getting this. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, you, you definitely did have a little bit of cred and notoriety at that time. I didn't really understand marketing very well at that you know what i mean i just i just wanted and i didn't i just my mindset wouldn't allow me to call something my own name at that point you know i was probably just too insecure and i don't know i i didn't know if on was going to become a band i did i didn't really know that it ultimately was essentially just a solo record um i did put together a band to realize it for live but we only played a handful of shows before the whole thing kind of fell apart well you got two great albums out of it i mean i i love mm. come on collapse is great I'll understand you, even when you try and fake me out. come on collapse now The second album, you do that really cool police cover, and then um, oh yeah, that's great. I mean, when the world is running down, theme song and Hey Sugar. I mean, these are it's really and it's different. It's not failure. It's a little poppier, little like you said, a little more um, electronic. was that part of it was definitely a reaction to failure kind of ending in the tragic way that it did or not it was more like okay i just didn't want to do anything like failure really you know i just wanted mm -hmm. to just leave that where it was i was super proud of fantastic planet and i was just like okay well i did that and with with some really good people and that's separate and i'm gonna do something different now and i remember thinking sometimes i'd be playing something oh that's a little too failure i don't want to do that oh wow yeah man for sure but i'd be pretty pretty rarely because most of what i was interested in wasn't very failure-esque anyways you know i was interested in synth sounds and you know chords that weren't maybe weren't quite so dissonant did your the music you were listening to change at all from failure to on to influence the music at all? Or is that kind of hard to say going back that far? I mean, I know. I, I think I was already listening to boards of Canada, 
you know, when I was in failure. So it was like, I was already into electronic music as a listener when failure was still going. Well, you can definitely hear that influence in the Depeche Mode cover that you guys did. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we were big Depeche Mode fans, so when we were asked to do that, it was kind of a no-brainer. Our only concern was which song we were going to get, and thankfully, we were only like the second band asked to do it, so we got Enjoy the Silence. Oh, nice. That's one of the songs that they're known for, so to be able to get that one, that had to be, you had to be in early on that one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We lucked out. We lucked out. (laughs) So did you have a desire to get back into a band setting when you went from on to you're the rabbit? Cause that was kind of from reading about, cause I remember reading about it when it came out, they kind of considered that uh, almost like, like a, an alternative super group at the time. You, you know, Tim Dow and Solomon Snyder, Jeff Garber, Ken Andrews. And I remember hearing about it as being billed almost like it was a, an alternative super group. Mm-hmm. So was there was there a desire to, uh, to to just be in a band setting and not solo? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there were two things. One, I mean, <laughs> coming off of On was such a kind of crazy, like, record label debacle. I, I kind of, like, it was one of those periods. Uh, no, it was actually probably the first period where I kind of swore off being an artist. Oh, really? Yeah, I was very, I was so disappointed and just like, just like, well, so much work went into this and then to have it kind of fall uh, on its face like that was just really, mm, wow. I don't, the internal politics of major labels at that point were were just so just exhausting. It was just literally exhausting. I mean, your entire career held in the balance up one or two people. It was basically if those one or two people could maintain their jobs long enough for your album to come out. I've heard that a lot. Yeah. That like your A&R guy, your career depended on if your A&R guy was fired or not while you were doing your album. Because what it had, what was happening at the labels is that they had become these sort of like the corporate desire for high high profits was creating this kind of dog eat dog uh, mentality amongst the record executives okay right so they didn't necessarily get along with each other oh you know they were they were competing against each other even within the same label oh wow okay yeah that's what i'm talking about where you'd have so in the case of aunt what you had was a sort of like a, not a full regime change, but like a half regime change. And the people who came in um, were 
they were hardcore. They basically looked at the lay of the land in terms of what was already out, what was happening. My record had not come out, but had been serviced to college radio and had debuted like number one on CMJ. Oh, nice. And because of that, usually if something's doing that well at college, commercial will at least sort of take notice of it mm-hmm. commercial radio and see, see they'll test it maybe and see if it works with their format and it was, the song was soluble words and and they tested it and they added it k-rock 91x in san diego the end in seattle and live 105 in san francisco the whole west coast panel of alternative rock stations added soluble words way, way before the album was released what did you say i heard soluble words they flew out of your face then fell back to earth inaudible sounds Yeah, but so so it was added. Then we have this regime change. Then eventually the record came out. But so what happened was is because the record was already doing well at commercial radio, and the new radio team that was brought in realized that they couldn't take credit for it. Oh. Jeez. that's that's the level of that's the level of i don't even know what you call that just like <laughs> i mean just insane yeah. like it was insane it wasn't it was not about the success of the label or the success of the artist it was about the success of the executive and whether or not they could take credit for an album's sales success or not man and if they could if they felt like their predecessor would ultimately get the credit for my record they just said fuck it and and to the point of they were calling these radio stations and telling them stop playing the on record what and start playing this record Oh, and I know what record it was too. Oh, <laughs> and and Ed, you, you you might think, oh, I'm just making that shit up. I had these these stations were calling me at home and telling me, dude, we've actually never had this taken a call like this. This was really disturbing. Oh um, we've been banging the shit out of your record, telling your label to make a freaking video for it because if they don't we're going to lose some momentum here and you know MTV actually called them and said we want a video for this song cuz the song is charting oh wow why don't you have a video it, it went from there to they literally pulled it off the air replaced it with another artist and a label mate of mine. Oh and God. that was the end. That was the end. That's insane. And I, you know, if that doesn't leave a bad taste in your mouth or not want, or at least not want to jump into the whole, like, 
let's let's do a an actual band that's going to tour and make records and stuff yeah i mean playing for fun is playing for fun and i still played guitar you know but like yeah. i just was like i'm much happier just producing and mixing for other artists and by now because fantastic planet had been out for like three or four years that was happening pretty regularly and i was making a living doing that and so i was like i don't want to do bands anymore i don't want to i don't want to be an artist myself right because it's just it's too frustrating it's too much politics i'd rather just work with a band that's cool and help them realize whatever it is they're trying to do you yeah know? I mean, what's the point of, of going through all of that just to have your label stab you in the back that's a very concise way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so, you, so you get back into the, the swing of things with you or the so, Well, right. So, so I'm friends with Tim Dow after yeah. Tim Dow does some of the live drumming for me um, in the very limited on shows that we do. Okay. But we become friends. And on's over, I'm doing some other records and I don't know how much time elapsed between the Sony deal kind of falling apart and Tim coming to me and say, dude, I know it sucked, but like, you gotta do it. You gotta get back in there. You should just do a band, just do a band. It'll do way better. You're a band type of writer and like, let, you know, I'll put together all I'll get some dudes. All right. So uh, he literally found Jeff Garber and Saul, or maybe Jeff brought in Saul. I didn't bring either of those guys in. I didn't <laughs> know who they were. Tim, Tim pres basically presented them to me and I listened to the stuff they had done. I was like, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, and, <laughs> wow. but Jeff lived in Chicago and I was like, all right, well, listen, if we're going to make a go up with this, come out here. I'll put you up for a couple of weeks. We'll see what happens if okay. we get along musically. And so he came out and we hit it off musically and as friends and got roped into doing the artist thing again. <laughs> <laughs> I love that album and I, the EP was great. I love the Stone Roses cover. covered enough for no i love they it. don't and i don't know if this is sacrilege but i actually like second coming better than their first album but that's that's me i like them both yeah but the the, the rest of the songs like strange eyes absent stars mm -hmm. lie down those are just awesome tracks man it, so what when it came out what was the reception like? I mean, were you getting, were the failure fans, uh, fans of You're the Rabbit? Were you getting good feedback from, from the music? And were you guys touring much? Um, I don't know what the total amount of shows You're the Rabbit did. I'm guessing it's right around 150, something like that. We did tour. 
we ended up signing a freaking huge record deal with Electra Records. And I, I was like, I was so ambivalent about doing that because <laughs> I was so worried, you know, just like, oh, God, I know how these turn out. I've signed this exact contract before, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, but look, if you guys want to do it, let's do it. And so we did it and we got a manager and we went on tour and you know it seemed like the label was just going to be totally uh back it they spent a lot of money getting us there was a bit of a bidding war for the first album and then another label thing happened where electra got essentially folded into atlantic okay so Electra was like being on Electra was like a dream of mine because like the cars were on Electra, Pixies. I mean, just so many. I mean, there was just Electra was like a label that I love since my childhood. Right. Yeah. You know, so I was so stoked, but of course, there was no relationship to the Electra that I signed to, that you know, the cars wow. were on. I mean, or anybody was on because the labels, major label world had really evolved into this very money centric, you know, not, it, it was more, more like, um, gambling where they, instead of having a plan to like find an artist, nurture them, grow them and grow their audience over the course of several albums, they were more about like acquiring acts, throwing a bunch of money at the first record and seeing if something happened and if it didn't that was you didn't make a second record oh wow but that's not actually what happened to us they dropped i don't even know like i don't know if it was a hundred but they dropped a ton of acts all in one fell swoop oh geez um because they got folded into atlantic and so they didn't have their own separate a and r or radio or any of that really for for a long time I think there was an effort to kind of actually if someone I know was brought in to kind of rebuild Electra just a few years ago, it didn't pan out. Oh man. Yeah. So was there ever any thought to doing a second year of the rabbit album? Well, no, because <laughs> it was like deja vu. I'm just <laughs> like, oh, okay, this time I'm never going back, <laughs> you know, like screw this because again, it was like, if you have people paying you money to go into the studio and make cool music, then why do you want to spend all this time promoting it anyway? You know what I mean? It was like, I had this other career of helping other artists on their music. Right. And I found it to be so close in a way to being in a band. Cause if you're a producer, especially if you're a producer, especially if you're a producer, I mean, that's what they say. Being a good producer is like joining the band. Okay. So, and I had a run there where I produced a bunch of records where bands really liked me yeah. because they liked records that I had. Not only did they like records that I had done, but they liked working with me in the studio because I, I was like one of them. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I really, I really understood and if they had if they had management or label problems, they could they would come to me and talk to me about it because <laughs> they knew I had been through all of that same stuff. Yeah. So I made a lot of 
friends of you know in bands and it was a cool time but after year of the rabbit i was like i'm never going on tour again i'm gonna wow. be in the studio well you've done i'm like looking at some of the credits you know obviously blinker the star we mentioned before but i mean you did tenacious d pete yorn uh your wife charlotte martin stuff mm-hmm. so x x oh, wife yeah sorry, sorry yeah. the quality is is fantastic and i think like you like you're saying that, that comes from being where they're at you know understanding what they're going through at that time being an artist going through some of the heartache that you've had to go through so, or just being nervous in the studio yeah. like that i i was nervous in the studio when i made my first record yeah i know what that i know exactly what that feels like so what brought you out to do secrets of the lost satellite totally fun I, that okay. was I, I well there are actually two things i mean i found a way to do it where i didn't have to deal with a record label and the way to do that is have your own label yeah hey there you go <laughs> <laughs> and the, but honestly the whole reason i had that label is because someone told me that you know you still have a lot of credibility in the business if you wanted to i know there's a label right now that's basically giving money to people like you to start their own labels and funnel them content, funnel them albums to release basically. Wow. So I got my own label on universal called dinosaur fight records, but I, I only ended up doing that once Ken Andrews solo record and one Charlotte Martin record through that. And then that label basically went away because of course, again, massive reconfiguring of universal oh okay they basically had this arm independent distribution arm of universal i forget what it was called that was that was the arm that my label was going through and that arm they they got rid of it or sold it to another label or something but but the strange thing is the guy who was heading up that entity at the time ended up over at a different sort of distribution company called InGrooves, which failure actually licensed our first record back, um, The Heart is a Monster, to InGrooves and, and Brian Mead over over oh, at okay. uh, over there. So it ended up paying off later, kind yeah. of, <laughs> that, that whole label thing. But they gave me some money, and I was able to go do a tour, and that was a no low expectation you know just doing it for the joy of making a record and oh cool not a lot of touring at all for that record then you came up with digital noise academy another like super just kind of fun thing to do with with mostly artists i had worked with and some and friends okay yeah because i heard there was some something a little different about it like it was it was kind of started as like an online collaboration. Okay. Because 
a lot of the artists I had worked with, like Jordan, you know, don't we don't live in the same country, you know, let alone city. So um, there, there was a lot of people I want who I wanted to be in it who weren't in LA. Okay. Some were, but some weren't. And so it sort of started more as like a, almost like a Dropbox, you know, collaboration where we would, everybody would put up ideas into like a raw idea folder. And then there was like, more finished things. This had two people on it. And then getting close for a mix has four people on it. And what was cool about it is that every, like a lot of the people involved had their own studio. Yeah. So like, like Jordan, you would, Brad, like Jordan. Yeah. Brad. And so like, you would put like, I remember just like doing an acoustic guitar vocal song, putting it up there, raw song, do whatever you want to it. And then, not even listening for like weeks and then coming back and hearing what like four people put on it and just going, Oh my God, that was fun. <laughs> that was so cool to not be around while they're coming up with their parts to just hear their final That's contribution. Awesome. It was really cool. Really cool. Come on now, absolve the death of everything that Was there ever in thought of getting failure back together before Maynard James Keenan wanted you guys back together? <laughs> this is another a story that I have to correct and, and or destroy. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just not, it, I, I totally see why it happened because you can look at the dates of when we played the show, uh, uh, his birthday party show. Right. At the, um, I forget it was an amphitheater yeah, here in LA. I don't know exactly. Okay. okay. So that's the funny, the funny thing is, is that we had already booked our first show back at the El Ray, not played it, but had booked it and sort of already decided that we were going to make an effort to be a band again. I'm guessing about three months before he called me. Oh, wow. Okay. Maybe two months maybe a little bit shorter. And he reached out to me and he's like, look, I'm sure it's a long shot, but like, I want to do this birthday concert. And I was wondering if you would get failure back together to play a few songs and maybe I could sing a few songs with you or whatever. And I was like, yes, yes. And yes, <laughs> we'll definitely play, but it's not, we're not going to have to get the band back together. Cause we're already back together. I just got back from rehearsal <laughs> and he's like, he just kind of laughed and he's like, well, that's convenient. <laughs> um, yeah. So no, the, the getting back to getting failure back together was, I mean, from the time from when we broke up in 97 to El Ray 2014, our first show back was like a really long evolution of, getting back to being friends uh with greg basically okay um because there was like 
I don't even know, like for the four or five years after the breakup, I don't think we communicated at all. I may have communicated more with his parents actually during that period. So, and then there was a few, like we'd see each other here and there and it was awkward and weird and just like, we did the golden thing and there was some fun and kind of reflecting on some of the stuff we had done when we were younger, you know, right. toured Europe in our early twenties and stuff. And so that was kind of fun, but it was still like, okay, yeah. You know, we kind of went on our way on our separate ways after that, but we were keeping in touch. At least we were keeping in touch and we were aware of each other's, you know, whereabouts and what we were doing and stuff. Okay. And then it just kind of knew it happened that we both had our first kids within six months of each other. Oh, wow. Okay. And that was, that was ultimately the um, catalyst to getting back together in the studio because we started hanging out way more because we were letting the kids hang out together and okay. play together. They were the same age and it just kind of organically led to he and I go getting in my studio and picking up some guitars and kind of messing around. And we finally got to the point where it was like, we were actually recording and all of a sudden we realized, you know, we probably, I think we still kind of have the thing, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so we wrote a maybe, I think we wrote maybe two or three songs and we liked them and we evaluated them and listened to them for a few weeks that it was like, we both kind of knew we were going to have to make a decision, you know, yeah. <laughs> like we were just going to keep doing this in my studio or we were going to tell somebody about it. Right. And we were like, well, let's tell some people about it. And so we did and told Kelly and, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a good idea. And then it was basically decided, well, it's so hard to know where we are in terms of having a fan base. It's been almost or over 15 years. Let's just book a show. We'll book a show at a place we played in the nineties and see what happens. And we booked a show at the El Rey and it sold out in like five minutes, That's awesome. which ne that never happened in the nineties. I was going to ask you that because it seems like the band is more popular now than you guys were back in the nineties. Um, it depends how you measure popularity. <laughs> okay. If you measure it in music sales, we were way more popular in the nineties <laughs> because selling a hundred thousand records now is like um, being platinum. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the, I mean, it's literally the, it, the business as a whole is essentially about an eighth of itself Wow. from, from, from back then in, ter in terms of actual revenue. I mean, it just yeah. is. Yeah. So yeah, we did that show and, and it became really crystal clear at that point that we did have a new audience yep. that we, that it was hard, a little hard to tell the percentage of people that were coming to the shows, but it seemed like it was like somewhere around half, maybe a little less than half didn't know about us in the nineties. Cause they were probably way too young or not born. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. and i don't know any other band that's come back after such a hiatus to the success that you guys have had 
I've, I've been trying to think of one since you agreed to come on the podcast. And I, I honestly can't think of a band that that's had the resurgence that you guys have had. It's, it's amazing. And you guys have been one of my favorite bands since the nineties. So it, it makes me feel great to see you guys reaching a brand new audience, you know, connecting with the old audience, but also growing into a whole new audience who wasn't around in the nineties. Uh, it was, it's, it's just a whole different situation now. I feel like we don't have to explain anything to anyone. The fantastic planet basically did all the talking for us in that, in that 15 years off. Oh yeah. You know? And so when, when we came back, instead of being compared to grunge bands, it was just like failures back. Yeah. There was no comparison. It was just like <laughs> failures back and they're playing failure music. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so on, on the heart is a monster. I was curious as to how many of how much I guess of the music is new and how much was older failure material? Because I know on golden, there's a clip of, I, I don't remember if it's, maybe it's Greg playing the bass to, I can see houses on a, in a live clip. Right. Sure. Sure. So yeah, everything is, was new on the heart is the monster. It's okay. except I can see houses. Okay. And the only reason that song is on there is because just, there was a live recording that we had. <laughs> it's a funny recording because you can hear us playing the song in a club, mm -hmm. but mostly what you hear is our two friends talking to each other. Because <laughs> <laughs> they didn't think to point the mic at the stage or something. I don't know exactly, but you hear them talking about a party. And how they're going to go to the party after, after we're done. And like, ho I hope they finish soon. And like, <laughs> I think, is that out? Because I swear, I think I've seen that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You've seen, yeah. what you heard maybe that <laughs> maybe yeah <laughs> are you going what time are you going <laughs> <laughs> but 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 greg listen he's like dude that song was cool and we couldn't find it anywhere else oh really recorded we never demoed it i guess or something i don't wow. totally understand but we were able to figure out what we were playing at least at the club from that video recording i guess and he's like we could do a new version of this that could fit on the record it's one of the best tracks on that album i love that song and you yeah. guys you, you guys keep with the segues is that kind of a way to bridge the gap between fantastic planet to the heart of the monster or did you just like doing that i mean i think yeah i mean we were very conscious of Fantastic Planet being the last thing that people heard, you know, so we were, we were conscious about that and 
I mean, I, I, since we've rebooted, I, I think that the main challenge that we have put to ourselves is how do we maintain the identity of the band, but push our sound or the techniques forward, mm -hmm. you know, in some way. And so, cause it's, it, it would be possible for us to make a completely different band. Okay. Easily, easily. We could have done an electric, uh, a more hardcore electronic band because both Greg and I are really into that stuff. Yeah. But ultimately we decided, you know what? The thing, the magic happens when he, you know, he and I are playing guitars together. Yeah. You know, and we're, and we're relating to it and, and Kelly mixed into that too. And we're relating to each other musically and not really talking about anything. Okay. That's that's really where it happens, and so we stuck with that sound. And we also felt like, well, you know, we've kind of become known for these big, or at least Fantastic Planet, these kind of sprawling, long albums. Yeah. And I, I think if we felt any pressure, we felt like it had to be, you know, big and and time-wise really okay. like a lot of material you know? yeah so uh now i don't think we feel that way because we're <laughs> like three albums into um the sort of second half of the band's life mm -hmm. and i think we were almost like why do we have to make a long album we yeah because uh the heart is a monster is like what i think 16 or 18 let's see it's 18 tracks well I've got it up here, but I'm not going to count because they're not numbered. And then in the future, your body will be the furthest thing from your mind, which I thought was a really cool concept of doing four, four track EPs for you. Yeah. So you have 16 mm -hmm. songs keeping with the segues in that. And I think everybody knows the pledge music disaster. You were very vocal about that. And us as fans appreciate you standing up for the fans with uh with the whole pledge music issue that happened yeah so the new album wild type droid segues are done are you guys just are you moving away from the kind of space theme and the fantastic planet connection or is it just like you're saying you just want to do a slightly shorter album because i believe this one's 10 tracks I mean, I don't know about leaving the space theme or staying in the space theme. I, I don't know. Greg's mentioned things about that. I was more focused on the idea of making a shorter record. I wanted to make a shorter record. I wanted to make a record more like the records that I loved when I was just learning to play guitar. Like that first Cars record, it's yeah. like 36 minutes long. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Most records were about 37 minutes long. Yeah, because they came on out on vinyl. vinyl. Yeah, and was yeah. It, I think and, the sweet spot's like 18 minutes aside or so. Right, to right, get, 20 max. Best, yeah, to get the best yeah. sound. And you keep your bass heavy stuff in the middle. Right, so. yep. <laughs> and you, I, yeah. It, <laughs> That's it, it's science. It's, it's weird because it's the track that's most inside is technically kind of inferior frequency range wise but <laughs> yeah I mean, whatever i don't know i i hate that aspect of it of like planning out groove size and stuff but yeah i do like 
I did, or I did enjoy the idea of making a more succinct record that maybe, maybe what I was hoping is that the songs, individual songs maybe packed a little more punch. And, and like we said, we could say, have this same sort of impact in a shorter time frame. I okay. guess is what I was hoping for. And I don't know. I don't, I don't know if we achieved it. I, I, I like the record and it seems like a lot of the people are appreciating it. Yeah. And what I'm not noticing though, is anyone really complaining about it being short? Oh yeah. No, I haven't, I haven't, nothing that I've seen on social media has been negative about it. Yeah. But I was kind of expecting somebody to be like, Hey, did we just get a half a failure record? <laughs> What's going on? But no, people are just like, oh, it's shorter. Okay, well, I'll just listen to it twice. Yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is great, too. So with the pandemic going on, when did you start this album? Did, were you doing it in the middle of the pandemic, or did it start prior, or when things started opening up? No, it started right in the middle. Oh, wow. Yeah, it started... I think it, if, I mean, we did it in two stages. We, we had the planned out and organized like improv sessions or jam sessions that lasted about three weeks. And we did those in August of 2020. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. You're right in the middle of it, right in the middle of it. And we were all getting tested and it's pre-vaccine and we got tested and, but the other thing that was going on is that the rehearsal space, the space we rented was a really nice space, probably more expensive than we can normally afford. Okay. But because there was no one else working there, we got a really good price. Nice. <laughs> we stayed there for a while because of that. And it was also really safe because there was no one there. That's a it good point. I mean, we never saw, we saw like one or two people. Wow. And, or, cause it, it would just call us, you know? Yeah. You guys get in okay? Okay. We'll lock up. <laughs> you know, wow. and that was, that was it. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. So we, we didn't feel like we were in any danger cause we were being pretty careful and we yeah. were pretty much only seeing each other for that time. So, and we also kept like 20 feet away from each other in the room okay because it was a big ass room it was awesome oh that's great um and we were on headphones and we could hear everything really good and we multi-track recorded all of these sessions they were usually six to eight hours a day wow which doesn't sound that long but if imagine trying to actually improvise for that long every day where you're really (laughs) you really have to be like totally on mentally and giving trying to create something you've never created before and unique and what happened i think is that we kind of started to lose track of time a little bit and started to get really exhausted and kind of broken down in a way kind of oh just like by the end of the day we were just I remember just driving home and just being exhausted from those days, even though we weren't like running around the block or anything, just standing there playing guitar. But mentally it was just very exhausting. 
But I think that actually led to those recordings being very um, fruitful. And what, what's also interesting is that a lot of my favorite ideas or moments in those recordings, I have no recollection of playing them at all. Really? Zero. None. Wow. Oh, man, one of the, the really cool things about the album for me is that there are songs on that album that certain songs sound like they're from the different kind of sounds of the band's history. Like mm -hmm. um, Bad Translation sounds like it, it could fit somewhere on Comfort. Uh, yeah. Mercury Mouth could be magnified or Fantastic Planet. Submarines would definitely. See, I think Mercury Mouth sounds like it, that it does come from the heart as a monster. submarines i get submarines for heart as a monster or in, in the future I, I, that could okay sounds like to me it could fit somewhere on those albums so you get like the entire history of failure and some you know tracks that are newer like bring back the sound i love mm -hmm. i love the way it just it starts off and then it just gets a lot heavier halfway through unexpectedly kind of yeah yeah that yeah. i love that striking difference between the, the two halves of the out of the the song half moon you know another great track i'm gonna kind of segue this no pun intended into uh some of the questions that i got from the listeners because most of the questions are about the new album thankfully but mm -hmm. b thomas lemieux wanted me to ask he wanted to know how many of the song lyrics are are yours uh, how many of Greg's? Did you guys collaborate on any of the lyrics? And how how do you choose who sings it? Are you always singing your songs, or is, are you singing some of Greg's songs? I know that's a lot of questions um, in in one sentence. So I apologize. yeah, no, it's it's a good it's a good question. I would say there are. I mean, it, every time I've tried to kind of calculate the lyrics question, it usually ends up about half and half. Since Fantastic Planet, okay. You know, there, there are certain songs, I would say there's a lot more songs where 
I am singing Greg's lyrics. Oh, okay. Then where he's singing my lyrics because I sing more, right? Right. Yeah. So I would say like, I mean, I could just walk you through like a song, like, like a lot of the songs that were sourced directly from the uh, improvs, like say headstand, for instance, those are mostly collaborative okay. lyrically. One of us will have a phrase or, or, or something that, that sort of gets the ball rolling and then we'll kind of balance ideas off each other. But I would say in an overall kind of overarching way, I w would put the lyrics a little bit more in Greg's camp these days. Okay. I feel like I lean on him more than he leans on me for lyrics, especially if I feel like I've got something good going, but I don't like a few lines. It's really nice for me to be able to just say, Hey dude, help me out here. Like what, Yeah. what can you, what can you do here? Okay. Um, I'm maybe a little bit more about arrangement, you know, okay. and maybe a little bit more about the sonics. Okay. Not, not by much, but <laughs> I'm just, I'm thinking there's times where like, I know Greg's like back here working on the second verse for a song and I'm sitting here playing the second verse guitar part for the song. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. at, the, at the same time, like he's working on the lyrics, I'm working on a guitar part, oh, okay. you know, so, and it goes back and forth. But having said that, there are a number of songs on this record where either Greg or I came in with a pretty finished composition like half moon solid demo for that i did read what one of the things that happens when when that happens when one of us brings in a composition and presents it to the other person the other person kind of becomes the producer of that song oh okay and co-writer too but like also like well i know you wrote this song and you know you've spent some time like composing it mm -hmm. now i'm gonna tell you what the best thing about your song is and I'm also going to tell you that this part we don't even need anymore. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> or, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And we do that for each other. That's fantastic. So, you know, like Half Moon is really Greg's song. He brought it in and it's his song. But I made some pretty key arrangement changes to it. Okay. That, um, you know, he was into. You know, so it just depends, you know, where it's like bring back the sound is something that I presented to him and was like, is this good? <laughs> and he was like, this is really good. This is really, really, really good. I need to sit on this because I don't really have any changes right now. Oh, man. And ultimate, ultimately, he didn't really have that many changes, maybe a couple lyrics and some, some ideas about the arrangement. But see, that's one of the things like, 
you know it's like it's hard to do that on your first album when you're a band you know that makes sense you know it's 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 it, i picture that like to me that's kind of a mark more of a, a mark of a mature writer who can come in and and say you know what I really don't need to do much to this. It's actually pretty cool the way it is. I'm not going to mess it up. Why would I mess it up just so I can say I messed it up? Yeah, I, I just so I can contribute to it. Yeah, I think we're both kind of like pretty far beyond that stage, which makes the co-writing really fun and exciting and unexpected. Yeah. Like things happen that you can't predict, which is really fun. Well, you both have grown so much between your solo stuff, Autolux, and, and you know everything that great you guys have been doing in the interim between Fantastic Planet and Heart of the Monster. You guys have obviously grown as songwriters and musicians, so the confidence is there on both your parts. The confidence is there, and we've, you know, we've, like you said, we've both made a lot of records yeah. now. I've spent some time in the studio, so, for sure. All right, so Juan Pablo Acevedo wants to know, um, he said on the, your iTunes notes, he says most of the songs were made by piecing together and rearranging unrelated snippets and bits from the jam sessions. So he wanted to know if that was a difficult process to edit songs together. Mm, yeah. Did you have to do any like time stretching or uh, did the tempos match, you know, anything strange like that? everything and, oh, like that happened yeah and, go ahead keep going and the second half of that question i didn't read all the way through <laughs> sorry uh, he wanted to know if you re-recorded the songs once you had finished the cut and paste or are you actually hearing the uh, the audio from the jam sessions okay this is that's a really good question yeah. um and the answer the shorter answer the short answer is everything you just said happened oh wow we we spent a ton of time editing we did combine different jam sections together we took sections from one jam the whole band combined them with this other jam over here like <laughs> taking a a part and a b part but we also did like this this was a really cool part uh or, or a really cool moment when greg and kelly were jamming and they came up with this really cool groove and I wasn't there yet or maybe I didn't really like what I played or I barely played on it forever or I was in the bathroom whatever it was right. <laughs> I would hear that I, I I would hear it months later and go that's really cool I'm gonna come up with something for it now six months later oh wow and or I would I would grab a guitar moment from a whole different jam section and move it on top of, I mean, every kind of edit you could imagine we did on this. I mean, wow. headstand and it, just to keep going with that, mm -hmm. like there's a lot of the songs on this record where a majority of the recording that you're hearing is from the improv sessions. Wow. And then I'm thinking of headstand in particular, that is the drums were not redone from those original sessions. Uh, the guitar is wholly from those sessions. The bass I did redo. Okay. Because it was one of the few ideas was where I w was trying to sing some ideas while I was playing. And if I know the parts, 
I can do those things at the same time pretty well, but if I'm coming up with both parts at the same time, usually both suffer <laughs> <laughs> in terms of performance and timing, ry rhythm mostly. Right. Um, so, so I kind of refined the bass part and redid it, completely redid it. But I took Kelly's drums from that, from that jam. I think that jam lasted about 11 minutes. Oh, and I created a four-minute arrangement of his drum part first. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I loved what he played so much. redoing this is so cool and i cut up the whole drum performance sort of imagining what this song was going to become i pulled in some of the guitar figured out a way to make that work and then i redid the bit it was a very strange writing process Man. very there's everything under the sun from you know doing it like that way which is heavy digital editing and sort of like objectively looking at recordings you made over six months to a year ago and then there's like greg coming in with half moon when we're like almost done with the record right and go yeah. do you think this could fit <laughs> so the next question is from uh jonathan i want to butcher his last name burger or borger sorry well, mm -hmm. he wants to know if there are any plans to reschedule the full album shows. He's got a couple questions in here, so I'll throw them out and we, you can pick them apart however you like here. Are there any plans to reschedule the full album residency shows? Uh, will Year of the Rabbit ever play any more shows? And your thoughts on the post-punk dark wave synth pop revival. Are you listening to any of the newer bands from that? And if, do you go see a lot of live stuff? So that's a lot of questions. Yeah, just tell me the first one, one more, <laughs> again. Do you have plans to reschedule the full uh, album yeah. shows? Um, unfortunately, I don't have any news on that. I will say, I will go ahead and say that the next time we play live, we will be touring on Wild Type Droid. Okay. And that we we are considering how to or whether or not to rebook those those 90 shows. Okay. Um, you know, touring is a lot, it's a whole different question now, like how it's all gonna work and everything. Yeah. So it's just harder to do. It's yeah. just, it's harder to plan. You have to plan way further in advance. Oh yeah, cause I imagine everybody's out there trying to get shows at this point. It's insane. I mean, the the two things that are really hurting bands right now it seems like our uh venue availabilities and vinyl availability yeah thanks adele i mean well <laughs> you know I, I, yeah i think adele uh, is definitely a factor but the vinyl manufacturing was having problems before the pandemic and before adele really oh yeah it was it, it was like there was 
taking three, four months before any of that stuff. Oh, wow. Because, because, you know, the vinyl plants just kind of all died out, right? And then mm-hmm. when CDs happened, right, it's trickled along a little bit. But basically, no one really has taken until now the vinyl resurgence seriously in in respect to actually pouring millions of dollars into building new factory capacity. Yeah, because it, it seems to me, uh, just being on the outside, that a lot of the vinyl that's been created is being created for collectible purposes, not actually being to be played. I don't know. Runs. I don't. I would love to see some data on that. Yeah. I really would. That's a big question in my mind, too. Yeah. Because I do see people buying multiple copies of the same thing, you yeah. know? And you're just kind of wondering, well, what is that for? Yeah, exactly. get, It could be gifting, but like, or is it just like a more of a collector thing? I yeah. don't know. I, I don't know. I know there's a really cool um, vinyl pressing plant about an hour and a half from my house. So Blue Sprocket in virginia so they're flipping awesome they do some really cool stuff so and they'll print they'll print one or they'll print however many you need so they are really really cool and i mean i've I've been in contact with them i had a wild ass idea what's their turnaround time uh i that i don't know but i can because that's the million dollar question yeah you know right now get it in line for your album to be pressed the vinyl to be pressed that that's actually the problem it's not the the paper part of the packaging it's the actual vinyl there's just not a lot of capacity there well there is a way to make very very small runs but that's not really helpful for us we need a few thousand you know yeah exactly so 2022 do you have tour dates set up yet or are you guys going to be out later on in the year or uh, I, I will literally we're going to announce in january okay a, a tour coming excellent and it's it is in 2022 that's oh, all I'll say. beautiful <laughs> yeah yeah well hopefully you guys get make it back to the dc area i know you guys have a wonderful photographer in the family with priscilla who is also on the yeah. podcast and awesome uh, and but when you guys do come back to dc i'm definitely gonna come and bring my camera again and uh take some more shots sweet so maybe we can get another awesome. one of you with with your head yeah so, and, and no body yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then i'll do a failure and i'll just kind of cut something from two years ago and made it to something i just did today <laughs> <laughs> yeah but where can people pick up the album how how is it available besides vinyl? <laughs> How can people yeah. get it? Well, I mean, you can go to our page at uh, Hello Merch. We have a, a lot of different things there for sale. Most of our music is there. And we have like merch and shirts and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You can go to Bandcamp. Our entire discography is on Bandcamp now. Oh, that's awesome. I love Bandcamp. Um, yeah, uh, we haven't. Apparently, I get. I get, we never had anything on there until recently, until Wild Type Droid, and then we just decided to put it all up there. So it's all there, and of course, it's all on, you know, the streaming services, Spotify and Apple Music. Oh, I I did have one more question for you. My own. But curiosity. you can. Oh, let me just say, you yeah. can order those. We do have all three physical formats 
I'm going to say all three. I mean, we got cassettes. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Oh, wait. Okay. So I got to tell my son that because he likes failure and he loves cassettes. He's, he's 18 and he, yes. he's into old tech. He loves all that stuff. I mean, cassettes are a thing. I grew up on cassettes. Yeah. Me too. Um, making, make it in playlists is the modern equivalent of cassettes. Mm -hmm. what I did with cassettes. Yeah. Mixed tapes. Mixed between making my own mixed tapes when I was learning how to play guitar to cassette four track and mixing down to cassette stereo. I mean, cassette (laughs) was just my world was cassette for 10 years. Oh yeah. And so when I see one now and then I hear the hiss when you hit the play, it's so wow it's powerful it it is something else i mean it's like a smell it just takes you right there (laughs) it's funny because my son my son we went we had to get him a car right so Mm. he had a couple of requests for it and this is this this kid's something else he's hilarious he's the only kid i know that wanted a minivan and ended up getting a convertible so but (laughs) He, That's awesome. He wanted a minivan. That was he wanted a Ford Aerostar. I don't know. Maybe he's a big Neil Young. He fan. wanted a Ford Aerostar with a cassette player in it. Yes. Uh huh. But we ended up finding a uh, Chrysler Sebring, a first generation Chrysler Sebring convertible with a working cassette player. And that's the first thing he checked was he pulled out the cassettes that he got because for Christmas a couple of years before, put yeah. the cassettes in and. He, it worked and he was three. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, dude, pl- blasting a cassette in your car when you pull into the high school parking lot. Yeah. That is a, that is a dope, dope move right well, there. I know we kind of went off on a tangent here. Where can people follow the band on social media and, and find out the tour information coming up in January and all? Failure Band IG, Instagram. I think just Failure Band on Facebook. And failureband.com is the website. Well, I mean, I've kept you for quite some time. I really do appreciate you indulging all these questions for me and the listeners and just covering some stuff that I know wasn't exactly comfortable. <laughs> so I appreciate Oh, yeah, no problem. No problem. I appreciate what you're doing with all your questions and also interview, I mean, the rest of the team. That was really cool. Oh, it's, yeah. I love the failure community, man. It is actually a community. It really is. It really is. I I treasure it for sure. Right here. Okay, so that's my daughter Maggie. There's Josie, and that's my son Mark. 
That's Ken Andrews for failure. So. Hi. 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 <laughs> All right, guys. Oh, and then there's you Mike. like cassettes. Mark. Oh, he, he, is that a Rottweiler? No, he's a mix. He's a mutt. He's uh, oh. So he's mm. half boxer, half Australian shepherd. Oh, he's beautiful. His name's Hammond. Hammond. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.